by not setting more stretch goals and by not like putting ourselves in these positions of discomfort, we actually mm. don't realize what we can achieve. Welcome to Third Culture Africans, the lifestyle podcast for dreamers, thinkers, and doers. We celebrate artistry, share stories from those brave enough to create something and succeed, listen to diverse perspectives on African success, and those shifting the needle on culture. I'm Zezo Sal, your host. On this week's episode of Third Culture Africans, my guest is Charles Sekwalo of the Continent Group, Move Me Back, Agony App, and Cos Ventures, to name a few of his ventures. He started his entrepreneurship journey at 14 years old. He's a lover of challenges, very goal-driven, and is a multipreneur who loves solving big problems and believes that building stories that matter is a great way of opening the conversation with prospective clients. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did having a chat with Charles, who seldomly does interviews, by the way, and enjoy it. Well, thank you, Charles, for joining us on this week's episode of Third Culture Africans. Absolutely a pleasure, today to have me. Thank you. I was quite excited about having you on because you have had such a varied um, journey into entrepreneurship and multiple entrepreneurship ventures. And it's always great to hear from someone who has been able to transform their careers beyond what it is statistically that the general expectations would be. Just so that the listeners know, um, we've got Charles Sequelor and you are one of the founders of Move Me Back, the Agony app, and you're also an investor through Cos Ventures and part of the Continent Group. Did I get that all of that right? That sounds about right. There are, there are a few things dotted in between that yeah, we forget to put on LinkedIn, but you pretty much got it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can we can fill in the blanks um, yeah. throughout our conversation. But essentially, you started what would be the LinkedIn for Africa in 2009 with your business partner called Move Me Back? It was actually in, in 2015. Oh, wow. So, okay. Yeah. So it's been a bit of a varied journey. But um, in 2009, if I recall correctly, I was leaving my first job during the recession. Oh, wow. That's when I went into my second stint of entrepreneurship. I actually started as an entrepreneur when I was probably 14, 15. But 2009, I was switching. Um, I was leaving my first job, became an entrepreneur. In between, actually went back into employment, went to a major retailer here in the UK and then onto a strategy consulting firm. And it's only until 2013 that we made the leap full time. And then in between that, we built and invested in multiple businesses. And then finally, uh, really found our calling in, in what we're doing with Move Me Back. Okay, so <laughs> let's rewind. All right. <laughs> Let's rewind to, I guess, first entrepreneurship venture at 14. Mm. I guess before we even go into that, let's, I guess, start from the beginning. You mm. are born in England. Your parents are Ghanaian. You know, your parents were immigrants to the UK and you grew up in London on a council estate. And mm -hmm. through that, I'll let you fill in the blanks from there because, you know, statistically for you know, kids who are raised on council estates is that 80% of 
they'll never leave. And two generations later, 80% still never leave. So even that and hearing that you had your first entrepreneurship journey at 14 says a lot. So I guess if you can fill in the blanks and what your inspirations were to consider entrepreneurship, etc. Wow. Yeah. Taking it back. And I guess I have to start by saying a big thanks to both of my parents who in their own way gave us such a great start, despite the fact that they on paper at least had very little, but I think what they didn't have on paper, they, they certainly had in other dimensions, you know, a certain richness and ambition, but also just a purposefulness around doing the right thing and doing what matters. So, yeah, so I grew up in West London, Ghanaian Brit or British Ghanaian. Uh, and that, I mean, that's interesting because... Which comes first? <laughs> but there you go. Which comes first? And which one is it? Because I mean, part of this this whole dynamic of being diaspora is the fact mm. that you constantly don't really have a home, you know? And, and mm. I very much grew up in a period where everyone would literally say to me, go back home like at school that was a, a mm. consistent theme yeah and then at the same time you but you were you, born here so i was born here yeah you were born in england so your home yeah. is england absolutely Crazy. yeah and at the same time you you know you go to ghana and you very much know that you're not from there or people remind you that you're not from there and not in a mm. cruel way but in a in a way that is i guess in, in a way stating the obvious this podcast is sponsored by malay natural science Malay's products are inspired by the rich landscapes, alluring scents, and ancient wisdom of Africa. Their luxurious fragrance and body care range balances 100% natural active ingredients and scientifically proven formulas to heal, protect, and pamper your skin. Malay ships worldwide, and you can buy their products at maleeonline.com. They also offer a free sample if you'd like to try. What's interesting is I tell people now to call me Chale. So that's my name, Chale. And, yeah, I was going to say, you, you, have, you have an alter ego, an alter persona an online called Call uh, Me Chale. Absolutely. Yeah. And I own it, callmechale.com. But um, yeah. I mean, that's very important to me. And, and the, the reason why it's important to me is I remember being on, I mean, our school was on the estate and I, I mm. went to a school where actually there weren't a huge number of ethnic minorities, um, but there are a few of us, a few black mm. people, but the majority were also from you know other regions where you, know, you could see they had economic hardship or there were you know people mm. who joined us, had come to the UK as refugees at the time. Mm. So Romania, Bangladesh, very other places mm. um, but there wasn't a huge mm. number of us and I remember when my parents used to pick me up or my mum used to pick me up at, at school and funny enough Ghanaian was my first language like English wasn't my first language like and the, the definition of that is what do you speak when you're at home and so I speak always spoke Ga at home and really yeah really and it's I didn't even know that <laughs> yeah okay uh, so I guess context I meant mm. okay I thought I met you at a family function turns out mm. actually you reminded me that we met at a Facebook speaking uh, <laughs> engagement mm. <laughs> and so we've now known each other for when was that I, I'd say over five years yeah I reckon it was 2016 Okay, 20, so summer summer 2016 yeah getting to five years yeah okay okay so sorry i i interrupted i'll let you yeah no worries and we must come back to the story of how you taught me how to use instagram and what you, <laughs> what you can do with it i still I, don't believe 
believe I did that, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I can't say that your lessons have been put into good practice, but I'm, I'm still working on it. But anyway, yeah, going back to uh, Gaul as my first language, and why that's significant for me is I remember my you know, my mum picking me up from school and you know, she'd always be like, hey, Charlie, let's go. And I was so embarrassed by that at the time. It's really interesting because mm. you, you, know, you just grew up in a, at a time when it just wasn't cool to be African. Oh, far um, from it. You oh, know, goodness. And Shocking. Yeah. I, you know, and I, I remember being at school. Did you ever try and, try and like, know, like, I used to go to Jamaican hairdressers. And so mm. being able to at least have, like, patois or, like, lingo or like <laughs> wagwan and you know you listen to Man <laughs> because um, it was cooler to be caribbean than african yeah i mean that, that came a bit later that came a little bit later in in life so probably around midway through secondary school uh but i, I was very much sheltered from even going to the barbershop was, I remember my mom used to cut my hair with the scissors at home and uh, yeah, she, yeah, she wasn't a pro. And so, yeah, you know, shout out to my mom for doing that, but she shout wasn't out a to pro. Moms. So, but you no, know, I remember one time there was a bit, a bit of a patch and that became a story around school. But anyway, not to get sidetracked. Yeah, it wasn't so cool to be African. And I remember very vividly actually being at university and with my friend, we, we were somewhere in Clapham. I think we'd actually just gone to get a haircut, funny enough. And I got a call from one of my parents. This is what, 2000 and something. Again, still throughout my, my time, we speak Gar. And they called me, we were speaking Gar. And I was clearly a little bit uncomfortable about it in, in the fact that I was in front of him. And he said, you know, why are you so uncomfortable about it? Like, I, if I could speak another language, I'd be so proud. And I think that was actually one of the, the turning points for me when I was like, hold on a minute, like, what is this all about? Like, why is, is this something that you're a little bit uncomfortable with? Why are you not embracing it? And I think it's through multiple parts of the journey, actually, that I started to really start to own, you know, who I am in it, all its mm. forms, you know, whether that's British, whether that's Ghanaian, whether that's citizen of the world, um, whatever mm. it is, um, for me, Chale, you know, it embodies all of that. So, yeah, I mean, uh, we, we got a little bit sidetracked there, but that's an important yeah. part of the story. For no, me. but I think yeah. it's definitely important because, you know, to, to be brazen, obviously now in context, we've got Black Lives Matter, we've mm. got all of these movements are happening across the globe that in context that makes sense but i think making the bold statement you know with callmechali.com even on a professional level is something right and mm -hmm. so fast forward at 14 you decide to become an entrepreneur how thought yeah. what why <laughs> sure the irony is that i didn't decide i, I fell into it and it's only now okay. that i describe it as being an entrepreneur at the mm. time i was just doing what what i felt was necessary so mm. you know we grew up with a humble existence. I mm. remember looking forward to, you know, like 50th birthday parties when you could go with your parents and then all the kids would go upstairs and you could go play mm. on people's games consoles because we didn't have them. So my mom at one stage, like she really, like she used to buy these things from these catalogs where you literally pay it off over like two years and she saved yeah. up and she bought us our first computer. And that was a real turning point for me. I think I must've been, you know, 13 or 14 and mm. I was just obsessed with this thing like I'd always been someone who likes to build things I, I break things apart I build mm. them and so she bought this computer and, and then I ended up spending so much time on it to the degree that at school I became the computer engineer for the entire mm. school whenever things broke they'd come and get me Amazing. and then it very quickly developed into something else where I one summer I walked into a store I 
the guy who runs a typewriter store and said to him, hey, have you ever considered doing this for personal computers? It's the next big thing. He didn't take mm. me very seriously. And it involved from there. Fast forward like 18 months, I had a client base that was pretty much all of West London, both corporate and individual. So if you, whenever Fantastic. you watch the news, BBC, yeah. Sky, all of those newsreaders were clients. Then the organizations became clients. Then we moved into printers and computers and oh, various wow. other things. So it was an interesting journey and it all happened very quickly. And it was just driven by a necessity to, well, one, a passion for what I was doing, but two, a necessity to actually just have things in life that we saw other mm. people having that we didn't have. Amazing. And then through to university and then straight out of university, the aspiration is get a job. Yeah, not quite, to be honest. Like uni was interesting for me. So yeah, we referenced the school. Because you'd only made money, right? So you knew what making money was at 14. It wasn't that I knew what making money was. I knew what independence and doing my own thing and doing things my way meant mm. in a way. So yeah, firstly, university was one of those things that looking back at it, I didn't really understand. I didn't know what I was doing. I just knew that firstly, I went to a, a school where I don't think anyone from my school went to, my primary school went to university. Then I went mm. to a secondary school where it was more focused around sports. Like for example, Mo Farah went to my school and mm. we had a lot of people who were very successful in sports. But again, university wasn't, you know, a few people go to university, but you know, Cambridge, Oxford, maybe that might mm. come around like once every every five years you get one person so mm. that was me like I was the academic and I was one of a mm. select group of people and I and, and uni was something that I was doing as part of hey like this is the next step this is the success mm. that is Charles without really understanding what I was really going there for or what it was about so I fell into university I, I picked electronic engineering and management which is something that I love thought I love to do and, and to a degree mm. I do but it was just a journey of kind of doing the next thing and mm. and similarly getting a job I didn't actually apply to any jobs whilst I was at university it's only on my kind of my final month when I'd finished exams and I realized well I kind of need to go and do something that I applied to the one and only job and fortunately I got that and I joined a company called Accenture and the allure yeah. there was I wanted to see the world, hadn't really traveled much. Um, I mm. wanted to incorporate business and technology, and I wanted to ultimately learn skills that would allow me to go and build my own business. I knew mm. when I left university that I was going to go and build something, like, absolutely. Amazing. Mm. So university being Imperial College? Yes. And so then Imperial College in through to Accenture, you were there for a few years. Mm -hmm. And then from Accenture, you made a very interesting move and into, I guess, a very data-driven sort of retail business environment and in their sort of supply chain. Um, and this was with Tesco. For you, what was the reason behind that? Like, was there a conscious thought as to, okay, I want to build something and I need to now go and get the experience of how I build something big with a big chain like that? Or was it just opportunity came and, and it was great to take it? It's super nuanced what happened here. So mm. the story of Accenture was, I mean, firstly, every organization I've worked with has been a great and massive opportunity. Um, and I've, mm. I've had a great experience in one way or another. Accenture wasn't any different from that and I spent the first 18 months at Accenture doing really big things and things that were far bigger than me like working in massive teams seeing these massive projects like multi-billion pound projects and you're like wow mm. you know how do you make this happen um, but mm. then something happened that always seems to happen to me which is kind of like 18 months in or maybe even 12 months in, I started just getting itchy feet and I'm like mm. Mm. 
And the minute someone gave me like visibility of what the path to the top looked like, and I started getting mm. exposure to partners and directors, then my mind started calculating and thinking, mm, okay, so that's what I'm going to be in like six, seven years, eight, nine years, if, I don't know, depending on how quickly I do mm. it. Is that enough? Do I, is that what I really want to do? And then I, I just started doing other things. So whilst Accenture, I, I started investing in the stock market. I started investing in commodities. And then I started getting into property. And anyone who knows me will know I don't do things by halves. Like I'm kind of all or nothing. So I'm a pretty much a graduate. I'm a, on a like, a, I don't know, 20 something salary. And I decide yeah. that I'm going to make it big in property. And so what I do is I do my research, like I really plan for it. And then I see that, hey, South London, Southeast London, like a lot of the parts near the river zone one, like massively, massively underpriced. So I'm going to make it big in that region. And so I was mm. like, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to buy the very best thing that money can buy. Uh, and so I committed very heavily, and we're talking like seven figures, into buying property, um, a lot of it off plan in that part of London. But where did you get the money from? Well, I didn't have the money. I just had the kind of the, the vision to do it. And so I, I mm. started calling up developers. I started finding out about off-plan purchasing where ultimately you put something down and then mm. you need to go and find the rest by the time they finish building, right? So you put it down at the mm -hmm. time when they haven't broken ground. And that was really interesting to me because I, was, I backed myself at the time. I'm like, I can make this happen. Uh, so mm. I I went and took out two loans on the same day to get my deposit, wow. my 10% deposit for this big, big kind of development, which is like one of a kind in SE1 multi-story. And I was like, I have to buy like the best property in this building wow. that money can buy. And I kind of put the deposit down and it was like, hey, yeah. this is amazing. It's going to have panoramic views of the in entire London space. Only problem is now, like as soon as I managed to secure it and exchange contracts which happens at the beginning it's like okay mm. now you've got like two and a half years to pay off all your student debt pay off all the kind of loans that you've taken for the deposit and raise yes. the other hundreds of thousands that's required to do this right yes. and then the recession hit like the and what and what type of recession was it it was a property recession so what had happened mm -hmm. is i bought in 2007 or something like that i'd committed to buying like this crazy price property in london at the height of the market six months later the market crashes like completely and um, it's not as if i'm on like a i don't know like 100k 150k a salary, salary. Yeah. i'm on 20 something and i've got to make this happen and the catch is if you buy off plan and you exchange and you don't mm -hmm. complete you lose your deposit you lose the property and when they have to resell it on they sue you for the difference right so the reality oh, is and your and your yeah. deposit was a loan so now yeah. you've got debt yeah and, and then if they sue you let's say at the time properties were being downvalued like 30 percent or so that means they probably would have had Goodness. to kind of sued me for two three hundred thousand that's immediate bankruptcy right and so that was the reality and i was like okay so that's not good and I've got two choices here. I can either kind of stay in this safe job and know mm -hmm. that, well, I'm not going to in two, three years in the middle of a recession, even if there wasn't a recession, I'm not going to go from a 20K salary to 150K salary to make mm. this happen. Um, so I have to leave. And and so I, I took voluntary redundancy in the middle of a recession. I didn't have a mm. job lined up. I didn't have anything. I was just like, this is the one moment in life where you just, you can look into the future and you say, if you do nothing, Mm. you're going to lose. If you actually mm. do the something that seems like the worst possible choice you can make in this time, you actually have a chance of making it work. So I, I, mm. I took voluntary redundancy and I didn't have a plan um, other than just a belief that I'll make it work somehow. 
Uh, mm. And that's when I got into into my second um, tranche of entrepreneurship before then recognizing that, hold on a minute, going back to your question, I studied Tesco in my management classes at Imperial. Mm. And it's a company that I always admired because they were pioneers in something called continuous replenishment and mm -hmm. just-in-time supply chain. It's something that we see now that Amazon are using, mm. but the idea that you can predict, you can identify what demand you're going to have within any store in any single place at any point mm. in time, and you can get your produce and you can get your items delivered in time or literally mm. by to the hour for the demand. Um, and I was fascinated by that. And so I thought, let me just, one, get a job in a recession to mm. get propelled into a, a far more senior position. I did join in, yeah. in, a, in a very senior position. And three, just do my own kind of personal MBA. Like I've got the consulting mm. thing. Let me see what it's like working in, in one of the biggest organizations, like doing real stuff and then take it from there. With also the real risk of your property investment. Oh yeah, that's a whole nother story. And so that was, a, that was my side project, right? The side project was mm. um, I needed to find a way to find out all of the other 400 or so investors in the property, mm. create a group. We brought them all together. And then we started speaking with local authorities. We literally started lobbying banks. We started speaking with the developer and we're like, how are we going to bring the power of the group mm. together to be able to make this thing a success for everyone? And that's where I think I started to see a few things about myself, like the ability to one, I need big goals to like make things happen. Two, mm. the power of bringing people together, like and aligning them around a shared vision, mm -hmm. and being a driver for for doing things and like pushing people to believe that actually, you know, there is a way through. Not to dwell too much on that, but that was a really defining moment in my life. You know, because mm. in the end, like ultimately, two thousand and ten, you know, successfully completed. And when you look back at the numbers, you look back at the story and the time in which it happens. It's like, how was that possible? And it made me realize that anything is actually possible. Like, and we just, mm. by not setting more stretch goals and by not like putting ourselves in these positions of discomfort, we actually mm. don't realize what we can achieve. Right. And that was a very mm. important turning point in my life. Incredible. I was obviously excited to have you on the show because I, I know how much you've got and in terms of just knowledge, experience and how giving you are of that. So hopefully, you know, I'm excited for everyone to hear your journey. But then into Tesco, you then make another move and strategy consulting. Again, still with a vision in mind, or are you now thinking, okay, perhaps I need to plant roots. I've kind of survived my risky ventures. And so how do I now, you know, what, what was the thought process for you? Mm -hmm. What are you thinking at this point? What is motivating you to even move on right so you've gotten what you need from tesco and so now mckinsey's that is the next jump purposeful or not yeah definitely purposeful I, mean, I spent almost exactly a year at tesco within two weeks i knew that it wasn't the place i was going to spend a huge amount of time and that is purely you know again great organization but it was a recognition that at tesco i didn't feel that i could move quickly enough i didn't feel that i could be challenged enough to really kind of get to where i felt i needed to be in the time that i wanted to do it and so a fantastic learning opportunity great experience there but it ultimately wasn't the long-term fit. Not to say that I was looking for a long-term fit, but one year mm. was the right amount of time to also learn about real business. I think the thing about 
it being in consulting is you're in this bubble of a group of people who fall into a very narrow category of, of life. At Tesco, mm. I really learned about people and I learned about the full range of your customer and who you have to cater for and the fact that actually we are all very different and it's very easy to fall into this and this helps me with the work I do on the continent but very easy when you spent your entire life just being in certain environments just to believe that the world works in one way when it really doesn't and people are motivated by the same things so it was great for that but McKinsey for me was I moved into that in a purposeful way in fact funny story in my final interview and again this is the respect that I have for the organization I actually said in my interview, they said, so what's the plan? I said, look, I'd be disappointed if I'm still here by 30 because I want to build a business. And the fact that I still got the job after saying that told me that I was in the right place. So McKinsey for me was, it was a number of things. I think one, it was an insurance policy in the sense that I thought, hey, look, I've worked at Accenture. I've got some industry experience at Tesco. With McKinsey on the CV, firstly, when I hop off to do this stuff, you know, even if my career takes a big knock, but one day if I've got kids and I've got to find mm. a way to support them and like make everything work mm. I'm probably still going to be able to find a job of some description it may not be mm. a high-flying job but with this on my CV I'll be all right second thing was I'd always wanted to find myself as close as possible to understanding how the world works and how the biggest decisions were made in the world and McKinsey was the path and, and the gate to that the gateway to that like absolutely and I, I thought that's the experience I would get at Accenture it wasn't quite and I misunderstood mm. the differences but McKinsey very very much was that and it delivered on that um, and then the third piece was I was just so focused from a very early age of like building up my knowledge of the people who I wanted potentially to be part of my teams when I, I go on to do whatever I go to do next. Mm. So I, I very much went into that organization, just wanting to meet people and learn about different mm. people and just, and just be faced with people who were just great at stuff. And so it was very purposeful. And, and, and I think that I saw myself being there for two to three years. And, and that's exactly what happened, actually. Funny enough, one thing I will say about that experience is it truly humbled me, right? Like, it's very easy, I think, in certain walks of life to think that you're very good at what you do and to fall into that trap. And I, mm -hmm. I truly believe that I was one of the best at what I do. But I went to McKinsey and I every day I felt like I was the dumbest person in the room. And that was mm. powerful. You know, that was really, mm. really powerful. Where you're just around people who push you to realize that actually, you know, you're just scratching the surface. And Amazing. so, yeah, fantastic experience. But it had to come to an end. And it did in 2012. Or 2013, whatever it was. And then you took the jump into entrepreneurship. Mm, yeah. And it, it was a, like every other chapter of my life, it was just a jump. It was a case of, hey, time's up. Let's go and do something different. Let's not, we don't necessarily have a plan, um, but we mm. have, an, you know, have an idea. So I, I left McKinsey. I remember writing my goodbye message. And mm. at the time, what I told everyone I was going to do was to create L'Oreal for the Southern Hemisphere of the world. We called it Project Nights at the time, but it was through McKinsey that I realized that, oh, my peers aren't behaving like me when it comes to grooming. They go at lunch to get a haircut. Like I was literally in the office, someone was like, yeah, I'm going for a haircut. They go at lunch, go to, going to get a haircut. You know, they're there, someone gave them like the FT, they're reading it. And it was just like, oh, I can't do that. I'm going to drive to South Your London to, 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 yeah, to my guy. <laughs> can't really go in my suit because I'm going to be there and somebody else going to be next to me and they're yeah. going to be like eating some chicken or something whatever it's going to be like yeah. and it's like oh that's a we are in the same organization but we have very mm. different experiences but actually 
why should we have different experiences? Mm. And then you started digging deeper and realizing that, oh, hold on a minute, it's the same goes for products. The same mm. goes for, you know, if you, you, you walk into a, you're in the city, let's say, you know, mm-hmm. you're a female and you're trying to buy some hair products and you, you, you can't walk into the boots. Maybe you can today. You couldn't walk into mm-hmm. the boots and find what you needed. You'd go to you that shop. Just in about. That... Yeah, exactly. And you go to the store in Shepherd's Bush and, you know, mm-hmm. the person who's serving you knows nothing about what it is that you need. Um, mm-hmm. And then I don't need to say anymore. I think people know the yeah. story. And so we're like, this has to change. And there wasn't an understanding of the products mm-hmm. and of the hair, despite the fact it was the most diverse type of hair. So we, myself, mm-hmm. and I say we, myself, my co-founder, Oyen, who we're, we've known each other since uni days, we did a, a leadership mm-hmm. course together. She was at the LSC. And we um, decided we we're going to create Project Nights, which was starting with a luxury salon, grooming salon in St. Paul's. And mm. then and, and then we were going to invest very heavily in the science of Afro hair care to mm. actually build products and use the flagship salon as the kind of the the marketing lead for, for what we were doing. Um, so that's what I was leaving to go and do, um, amongst other other things. But instead <laughs> Well, we, we, I left and that's, that's what we started doing. Then yeah. as is always commonplace in my life, like other things come along and I always feel I can do too much. And so then we started a, a separate business on the side, which was Minds mm-hmm. Me. And that was connecting people to each other for advice. When I was at McKinsey, I used to, I'd be at, for example, I was in, in South Africa and we were, we were working on a project, you know, we were uh, mm. taking a major retailer and what we would do at times is just get someone online like oh let's get the ceo of zara on the line mm. let's have a chat and find out how they did it and we used to use a service and we we're like mm, mm. wouldn't it be interesting if like everyone could have access to something like that and mm. so we tried to create something called minds meet which was connecting people for like peer-to-peer mm-hmm. advice like paid advice mm. so we were doing that on one hand and we we're trying to do project nights on the other hand and it's funny we, we went to a tech event and we pitched this hair salon Mm. And everyone was like, wow, like they were blown away. Like we were throwing the stats of like, mm. this This is, remember this is 2013, like, like things have moved yeah. along a bit, but like, we were introducing the tech world to this stuff. And everyone's like, wow, we yeah. had people from L'Oreal, from Microsoft being like, hey, mm-hmm. can we like invest in this? Can we get involved? Yeah. So then we were working on that, working on MindsMeet. Um, we launched MindsMeet. We were still working on, on the hair thing. And I'll, I'll tell you what happened with that. MindsMeet kind of, took off and then didn't really we didn't quite get it right we spent too much time like planning and doing mm-hmm. stuff rather than executing and then we pivoted that and then agony app came along and we're like literally walked in one day and we're like oh it's 2013 why are we not doing stuff on mobile we created agony app and that was like for again you live a professional life and mm-hmm. it's ultimately quite lonely like they people want answers to things and there's you'll see a running theme with all the stuff we've done but people want yeah. to access intelligence help they've got big decisions in life and there's no one to call upon especially if you've graduated gone into this lonely banking job you've lost all your friends and so agony mm-hmm. up was a way of being able to like create the virtual agony art it was a anonymous app where you could literally have build a community of people around you and get lifestyle advice on on anything and that did really well like that went viral we got covered in national press pretty much out mm. of nowhere you know, at the time we were innovating in the space. There was ourselves. And if you think of what Snapchat is today, like Agony app yeah. was like one of the first pioneers of that, along with an app called Whisper. Uh, yeah, it was, it was really taking off. Uh, and then we got to a stage with Agony app, with Minds Meet, with the Project Nights and all the stuff we were doing, all of this fell under our banner cost ventures, which you mentioned earlier. Like it's, yes. uh, we were investing and we were building stuff and we got to a stage where yeah. we looked at it all and we're like this is all cool but 
are we solving big enough problems? And we set up Cos Ventures as a way to drive positive change in the world. We're like, yeah. are we solving big enough problems? And we're like, mm, not sure. Like, okay, this could be great. It could be really successful. Like Agni App, it could grow massively. It was clear to you then that your goal was to solve big problems? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I, I think that this was something that always held us back a bit in a way. Like, I think it was driven by me a lot. My my co-founder was a bit of a grounding force and she always has been. Mm. But I start things, I'm like, mm, not big enough, stop. Mm, not big enough, start again, no, do something oh, different. Wow. And so, yeah, because it always felt like you have one shot at it. Is that because you have a picture in your mind of what it needs to feel like or be like? Or, yeah. you know, how, how do you know when it's big enough? Yeah, I think, and I think this is what happened to me in the corporate world. It's when you get to a stage where you're like, mm, I think I've cracked this. It, the problem mm. actually wasn't that hard to solve. Now it's about, you know, just like executing it out. And that that's maybe where one of my flaws where I get a bit bored, right? Where it's like, you know what, I've mm-hmm. done all the, I really understand this problem, really mm. know the solution. And you know what, we're winning in this space and we, we know mm. how to win. We just need to keep doing it on repeat and then keep making small tweaks. Mm-hmm. And arriving to that destination too early I think always made me feel that the problem wasn't big enough, it, but also in terms of impact as well. We're like, we looked at something like Agony app and we're like, oh, well, yeah, it, it's, it's cool. And we can say, Hey, it's another app solving Western problems, but why are we not doing anything on the African continent? Like mm. we spent time there. We're Africans. We, we know the terrain. Why are we not doing something there? That's where the African piece came in and it came in like a storm. That's when, you birthed or you guys birthed move me back it was through the journey that movie back came to be again movie back we we kind of it came out of the journey so i remember very vividly uh i think oyen went to nigeria she came back and said oh you know what there's some things happening there it's like it's quite interesting we were going through a meeting and then we we're in a taxi and we, were like, we just had a conversation we're like mm, maybe we just need to go and do something and uh, work it out where else are we going to have the opportunity to make such a big social impact and then also have a commercial story to go along with it? You know, where can we really, this agenda we've got of changing the world and driving positive change through business. If we get one shot at it, it's the place we need to do it. It's the continent. And so within a week of that conversation, we booked one way tickets, one way, one way tickets. And we were, um, and it's like, we'll work it out. But we then went and spent time in all the major markets, you know, like mm-hmm. a couple of weeks afterwards. But but did you know anyone in those markets when you when you were going out or you just took a gamble? Uh, yeah, we knew people, I think. You don't sound that convinced that you yeah, it's, people. <laughs> what I mean by that is I think one of the great luxuries that you have, it's a privileged thing, I think. When you operate in certain circles, when you've spent time in certain environments, other people's friends are your friends. And in that kind of professional world, it wasn't hard for us to call upon people who we'd worked with to be like, who do you know that's doing this? And before mm. you know it, you've set up a whole month of meetings. And that's literally mm. what it was. Like we were literally, we got to the concert and we had conversations at every single level from like heads of policy all the way down to startups through to big corporates. Like we really were trying to work out how we could add value to the continent. We did that in multiple markets. You know, we spoke with everyone. I remember we, we went to go see Jason and Bash at Iroko 
um, mm. in various others and just being like, yeah, so, you know, what's going on out here? Like, what are you struggling with? Blah, blah, blah. And at that mm. time, we were, we were convinced we were going to set up a fund. We're in a prime position to do it. You know, Owen was previously at Goldman, had lots of and private wealth management. Um, you know, that was a, an easy angle. Yeah. I kind of had done the strategy piece and so had a good way of like looking at businesses and then also had entrepreneurial experience as well and a good network that was a starting point and that that was like an easy path in a way and then we got pulled into other things we were looking at big transport projects we were looking at you know what can we do in hubs and tech ecosystems um, and we just kept iterating 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 and then we just came away with some key insights like literally every conversation we were having seemed to circulate around one of three themes number one is hey look there's some like real governance and policy or infrastructure problems like big big world bank stuff um you need really deep pockets to solve this problem or two mm-hmm. you know people are saying we need money we need access like you know it's 15 16 to get a loan from a bank yeah we need like how do you expect us to like scale things without that and the third but the most common that just seemed everywhere you went like at all levels what was the thing was we need the right people like we have don't worry we've got the money we've got the vision we just don't have the right people to be like you know that missing middle of people to just be like i can give you this and just take care of it and it happens in the right way mm. and then and and that's when the penny dropped it's like so oh. there was something about skilled workforce and lack thereof yeah and it's it was interesting because the continent is full of so many talented people the challenge you have is there's this triangle that I always talk about of there's something around experience, there's something around skill set, and there's something around perspective. And you need those three to come together perfectly before you get the ideal person, especially in some of the challenge environments that we're trying to work in. And mm. it was very hard to find people that had all three of those things in equal measure in abundance. And it became mm. very clear, like, this is the biggest barrier to all of the things we're going to do on the continent whether it's like you know how is gabon or negotiating with china when it comes to a trade deal people yeah. if you don't have the right person there people or whether it's like how are you going to like implement you know, big infrastructure projects and it's like you don't have people who have like had program management experience of dealing with like big big projects that's mm. not gonna, it's just not going to work or or you're doing something in like in housing and you've got people decorators who are doing stuff and it's like mm. they don't have a view of hey what the gold standard is because they haven't seen it outside of a certain context it's like mm. well that's not going to work either so skills experience perspective you know it, it came down to all those three and we realized that hold on a minute that's the problem that we need to solve and where else to start than with people like ourselves who kind of we got some perspective like you know we spent time on the continent i spoke i had a very african upbringing i may not have it all but i have something i've got experience and i've got skills mm. and we just realized oh this is our entire friendship group are kind of that and mm. they're always talking about going back home and doing something and then so move me back the name just kind of happened it was like oh yeah, they want someone to move them back and they haven't been able to do it, but they're always moaning about what they're doing, especially post-recession. It's like, and when mm. everyone realized that, hey, finance wasn't as great as it was kind of made out to be and it wasn't the answer mm. to everything in life. And so, yeah, that's how Move Me Back came to be. And then through Move Me Back, you mm. guys have done everything from policy shaping to pan-African recruitment for mm-hmm. companies like Facebook, Uber, to name a few, but really mm-hmm. helped shape the continent the way we see it today and in the revolutionary ways that those businesses have 
contributed to our understanding of what that ecosystem looks like now. Mm. I, I think that's that's a, a fair summary, actually. I think one of my, my biggest frustrations with myself is I think that one of the failings I think we've we've had with Move Me Back and the work that we do is we've not been communicative enough and we've not kind of told people enough about what we're actually doing, you know, in a way, movie that I'm was designed. You now. You're helping me. Thank you. Yeah, of now. course. I'm, I'm adding it. Since the I'm day I met it. you. <laughs> Since the day I met you. Um, <laughs> so small. Now, <laughs> I'm adding it now. Okay. So, just in case no one knows, right? Uber and Facebook's presence in Africa doesn't happen overnight. There are people in behind the scenes who help build the teams of these businesses when they look at going into Africa. And essentially, Move Me Back has played a pivotal role in the last sort of five years in a lot of these multinational companies or global companies in this new era of penetrating and building successful businesses on the continent. That's a nice way of putting it, right? Yeah, thank you so much. Um, and uh, better than me, I mean, you can have my job. So, Thanks, yeah, I'll, I think, I'll take well, a paycheck too. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, what, what paycheck? Not the risk. <laughs> you're going to be massively... <laughs> Sorry, you actually, let's make one clarification. You can be massively disappointed. If, you, you, <laughs> if you're taking it for the page up, you, you're going to give it back to me very, very quickly. Um, but, but, you know, one day that will change. But anyway, yeah, I think that we haven't been communicative enough about actually the full breadth of what Movie Back does, right? Mm. Um, and I think from the outside, some people have seen it because there's a piece around, oh, there's a common theme around, hey, look, for almost as you've alluded to, there's, there are, hey, it's just, companies who are hiring and it's just like a job portal but it's it's far from that we really really innovated in the space i mean firstly and first and foremost movie back was built as a community we recognize that hey if you can build a homogenous community of people who are ultimately trying to achieve the same things and you can mm. find a way in which you can engage them and then you can make sure that they have access and transparency right mm. and the a vehicle for making change then mm -hmm. actually what you do is you create this channel through which all of this talent can ultimately go on to do things that will make a massive difference right mm. um so it, it really was and is about connecting people to opportunities in africa and opportunities is not limited by in any shape or form to jobs it's anything mm -hmm. from building a business to investing to starting something to like it's it really cuts across the board and for us we looked at this from a first principles point of view which is hey, it's all great. You can do events. You can do a lot of hype around, hey, Africa mm. rising and all the rest. But when that's finished, people need tangible structures on which to stand upon to then go and do mm -hmm. something. And the problems we identified was there's a lack of structure, there's a lack of transparency. And for people who are fundamentally going to have to make a change, like you're not going from an investment banker to be an investment banker, there needed to be something that helped them to understand and facilitate the change. And that's what Moving mm. Back is. And it's done through community. And where we are today, we're used in 170 countries. We cover mm. the entire African continent. And the thing that people may not realize most about what we do is that actually the community that we talk about, you know, it's the 1% skilled, but soon to be broadened, you know, 50,000 mm. in, in 170 countries. That 1% skilled is both inside and outside of Africa. In fact, it's 50-50. 
So people are mm. in Africa right now, in Nigeria, thinking about, well, what can I go and do in Kenya? And they're using mm. back as a vehicle for doing that, right? So from mm -hmm. an individual's point of view, I think we've made a massive, massive impact on what how people perceive and do things in, in Africa. Because mm -hmm. even when you look at our numbers, and we're talking literally millions of interactions that we've driven from people actually just realizing and recognizing um, opportunities in Africa, like in the millions, and then at the same time, working with organizations, we work with over 1,000 of leading organizations in Africa mm. to either move into the region, to grow in the region, or to do something. And that's everything from big corporates to early stage startups to your NGOs to the Ubers and the Facebook. I mean, we worked with Uber as they expanded across all their major cities in Africa and many others have been the same. So yeah, that's the, that's the story of moving back and, and really where we are today. We touched briefly on, you know, the money aspect and very much, you know, you give you, me running away when I see that this is not about the money. Um, and I think what's something that's clear with each guest that I speak to is, yes, we all have an understanding of what money does and the role that it plays in being able and the privilege of entrepreneurship, actually. But at the same time, your role is diverse and purposeful in the sense that there's a portion of it that's service and you keep referring to solving problems and you keep sort of, I think I've heard you say that several times throughout the interview, but one of the big challenges that you guys have set yourself a goal is to create 500 million jobs in 15 years. When you first told me that, I was like, eh, if that problem is there, you don't have enough problems, you want to, you want to, you want to add that one. But there's also the, the element of how do you how do you do something like that, right? So how do you create a goal like that? And how do you fundraise for something like that? How do you finance these visions and these goals and these aspirations? Because solving big problems requires big money. And if you don't have the big money, how have you been able to navigate? You briefly touched on reaching out to your network and, you know, making it work for you. But, you know, you only have so much of that. Yeah. How, how have you guys done it? How, how do you get into a conversation with an Uber or a Facebook in and amongst all the other big firms out there that are also sort of competing for the same relationships? You know, as I say, I, I like how you ask these questions because they actually make me like learn. They, they make me realize you basically give me the answers as you ask the questions and help me like really reflect on what matters. Um, because you started by talking about solving problems and then you, you went on to speak about Uber and, you know, why would they look at us? I mean, they were our second client. I mean, our first two clients were like two of the biggest organizations, or first three actually, biggest or most coveted organizations operating on the African continent. And mm. you know, they all became clients and mm. uh, and there's a reason for that and I, I think it ultimately comes down to solving problems we have had and we still do have an obsessive focus on solving the right problems mm. and that's why in a way what we've done has been a little bit different and I, I really want to touch on the finance piece again because part of how we've looked at finance has also driven us to do these things in the right way so for me, there's absolutely nothing more important than solving the right problems. In fact, you know, and maybe I shouldn't say this publicly because we are, you know, a lot of the organizations we run are technically for profit. However, say it now, say it now. <laughs> it's never, ever a consideration. Like I have a, a fundamental philosophy 
in life. And I don't know where it, I don't know at what point I built it, but a fundamental philosophy that you have to focus on adding value and solving problems. Everything else will flow automatically. Like, don't worry about that. Don't worry about making money. If you are adding value to people's lives, if you are solving problems that are difficult, if you're solving things that nobody else has been able to solve and that they find too difficult to solve, people will pay you. Don't worry about that side of things. Of course, you need to worry about it if you've got investors and various others. But for me, from a philosophical point of view, solve problems, solve big problems and make that the only thing that you wake up in the morning and that you're trying to do. And that's the approach that we've taken. So when we started working with some of these big organizations, we were going in and telling them the problem that they needed to solve before they even started, right? Like, Yeah, but what what are you doing? Cold calling. Hello, Uber. Hi, I'm Charles. Call me, Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> I hear somewhere in the grapevine that you're considering Africa. We will be the best. Like, how, how are you approaching these guys? Like, Because mm. I think sometimes what we don't talk about openly enough is actually the initial hard graft, these things don't just fall in your lap. You've obviously yeah. talked about your journey through entrepreneurship, through being an employee, careers, etc. But there's also a shift, right, mm. that happens where you have to now be seen or make yourself seen by these organizations. Mm-hmm. And you're not the only one doing it. I think there are three factors that were pivotal to it. Yeah, The first not to be underestimated and i think is important to mention is there is an element of privilege right so as founders you don't go through working going to some of the best universities working at the most respected firms and not be able to kind of get some payback for that so firstly Mm. for anyone who you know sometimes and i've done it myself you know you knock the corporate world and you say oh you know yeah why people go and work in the corporate world it has its its value so that's the mm. first thing, right? It will open doors. When you walk through the door, you still have to put your foot in and show some value, but at least mm. it, it opens the door. So I think let's not try and overestimate our own value too much in kind of mm. in some of these things and recognizing that your background, especially in the early days, has a lot to do with it. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's important to say that. I think the second mm. thing is having a story that matters and it comes back down to that problem solving piece like in that first sentence when we were reaching out to many of these guys we had a story like we had a story Mm. that matters like we were like hey we have built a community of the top skilled people globally who Mm. want to do things in africa like how many people can actually go to an organization and say look we've got that and by the way they're just waiting for you so you know Mm. let us know when it's time and i think the third thing is having a sense of entitlement a sense of like by the way you're doing you organization you're doing what you're doing and that's great Mm. and we're doing what we're doing we are in a way we don't need you because Mm. we've got a problem that's we're solving that's bigger than you it's bigger than us it's bigger than everyone combined Uh, Mm. and so we're going to continue on that and i think that sense of when i think of the communication when i think of how i reach out to to organizations Mm. and and i don't do a huge amount of it to be honest Um, a lot of what Mm. we do now is organic but when i do reach out to anyone and i in the first sentence i describe our story i describe what we're doing and it's a genuine it's not a sales pitch it's genuinely this is what matters and this is what what we're doing and i'm not messaging you to tell you hey look we're great at finding people for jobs. It's like, no, we're creating mm. 500 million jobs and we've got the top 1% skilled across 170 countries. That's what we're doing and that's what we do. And then when I go on to say, hey, there might be an opportunity for us to work with you. It's like, we want you to help us solve our problem and, and you probably want us to help you solve our problem. Let's work together. Mm. We're not here to try and make money from you. We're, we're here to solve a common problem. 
there is a positioning there, which is in some way trained, but in, in other ways, it's very authentic. That makes a massive difference, in my opinion. And I think mm. those three factors that I've mentioned have been the difference. Amazing. Yeah. And you guys have been able to do these incredible things by being self-funded. Uh, yeah. When I said you'd look at my paycheck and you wouldn't be, you know, you wouldn't be excited. I, it was no lie. So the reality is that we, myself and Oyen, in all of the years that we've been building businesses, we've created profitable businesses and we've got businesses mm. that generate income and self-sustain themselves. We've never taken a single penny in salaries or dividends or anything of that nature. Obviously, there's a sustainability aspect. And I, I think mm. we spent many parts of our early lives like in a way, planning for this moment. I, I don't mm. think a lot of what happened before was by accident, but planning mm. for this moment. I'm, I'm the same, actually. I am of the same belief in terms of how I run my business. You know, shoot me for anyone who doesn't agree, but I only get paid if the business can afford to pay me. Mm. And that's at the end of the year, once we kind mm. of know if there's anything left in the pot outside of what we're willing to save and reinvest into the business. I, I don't know if that's if that's your approach. Yeah, no, I mean, our, our approach really has been that, yeah, it's it's similar, but it, it's it's been more of a deliberate, well, actually, we're just not going to take salaries until some point in the future. And so we, uh, we just, have, I mean, it, there have been, <laughs> we planned for it, you know, and, and I okay. think we make good choices early in life. I and mean, there are many things that we do, but for something like Move Me Back, every single penny that we make gets reinvested into what we do. Now, obviously, I think part of that is the fact that we have self-funded this. I mean, if, if we raised a serious amount of capital, then yeah, I would say it probably wouldn't be the smartest thing to just go without paying yourself a salary. I think it's it's actually mm -hmm. a good behavior and pattern to get yourself into. And also don't get me wrong, what we do, we, we have a very regimented financial system within Movie Back mm. where, um, and all the companies that we run, where actually, as soon as any money comes in, we shave off a percentage and that and those mm. percentage get allocated into buckets that never get touched. Right. So there's, mm. there's like a profit percentage. Now, we don't take that as profit. It gets ultimately yeah. reinvested back into the business, but it creates mm -hmm. a, a pattern of discipline mm -hmm. around, OK, you've got some capital coming in. 60 percent of that should be covering your operational costs. The rest mm -hmm. should be going to incentivize whether it's your shareholders, whether it's this, it's that. Yeah. And we do that. I mean, but we ultimately take those buckets. We create that discipline, take those buckets. And then that's bonus money at the end of the year that gets mm -hmm. invested into, oh, we've got a new project that we can do. We we made a very deliberate choice not to take external investment with a lot of the work that we do, for the moment at least. I mean, that's going to change very quickly. But having been all my life in a world, I call it the conveyor belt world, mm. where ultimately your measures of success and what you do are defined by what is a very publicly facing tick box exercise of you go to the best school, you get the best grades, you go to the best university, you go and get the best job with the best organization, you get promoted in short time. It's a drug and it's, in a, in a way, I find it a bit unhealthy. That's not to say it's a bad thing to go on to, you know, to stay on that conveyor belt, but it has implications. Mm. And one thing we dedicated our lives to when we stepped off and we started doing the work that we do is we want to solve the real problems and solving the real problems involves to a degree removing the distractions that force you to sometimes to solve problems that aren't the real problem right which mm. is what is it that the public perceives of me what is it that the public perceives of my organization like right now mm. the promised land is hey you raise series a like 
10, 15 million, you get you know, covered in, in TechCrunch, you do Y Combinator and everyone's like, wow, you know, you've made it, right? Reality yeah. is, no, you've raised money. And actually, we come from backgrounds where we don't think raising money is particularly hard. Yes, in your previous careers, yeah. Yeah, I mean, because you, you, you're around working in, you're in wealth management, you were doing private equity. I remember being one of my first projects, literally had the CEO of an insurance company just be like, hey, look, I've got this many billions and I'm looking for something to buy. Um, which company should I buy? And what should we tell mm. the market? And you start to realize that, yes, it's hard in a sense, but money is not the problem to solve for. Like money mm. will find you. And if you have a reason for money to find you, it will find you. Maybe you need it's a positioning. Maybe it's adding uh, whatever it is, get it right and it will find you. That's not the hard problem to solve. And the second part of it was we wanted to create for engines for growth and engines for sustainability, right? We actually wanted to build business. Business is fundamentally taking resources, creating value, and then being able to sustain yourself. We needed to do mm. that. We fundamentally needed to do that before anything else. And we have done that. Like I think that mm. I believe truly in, in like five, six, seven years, people will use what we've done when we get to a certain stage as case studies, because what we have achieved with no external funding is not common um, in any shape or form. I would agree with that, yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, for us, we wanted to make sure that we experimented with our own money first um, before mm -hmm. we, we brought other people's money in. Uh, and I think we're in the stage of what we're doing where we've worked it out, we figured it out. And I think mm. in a matter of time, um, hopefully we'll raise quite a significant yeah. amount but, of money and, like and this, drive this growth. You know? This obsession with the entrepreneurial culture and raising money, I think fundamentally we've seen that also, you know, not work right in several businesses where it's all about, you know, revenue growth, not necessarily profit growth, but revenue growth year on year and they raise money and it's all about valuation. So um, it's, it's paper businesses, right? It's not real businesses with real customers and, and, and end profits as it is. And, I guess the question is for a business to not be able to generate an income to keep itself alive, but to only survive for a decade or decades on continuous fundraising, you know, is that still considered even a business? It's a tough one. It's a tough one because you see in our world that in certain examples, it really is the right model. You know, you're doing big stuff. Look at some of the stuff that they're doing with like, SpaceX or some of the stuff that they, they did with Amazon. Look at the stuff. I mean, Google actually didn't raise a huge amount of money. But you look at some of these things and you're like, wow, hey, you kind of, in the models of the, of what we do right now, scale is everything. And actually, if you don't get some of these businesses to scale, then they never really make sense and they can't actually solve big problems. But in order to scale, you need to move really quickly. You need to grab as much land as possible and you need to do something. And in those cases, it's an absolute necessity. But I think we are in a world where that window of what falls into that category is far broader than it should be. And mm. so, you know, ultimately what you get is not to name any names, but like really big, high profile organizations who people use and they admire, but you're like, they haven't quite figured out how to actually make a profit yet. And I don't know if they've actually figured out how to even make money properly. But at the same time, they are adding value. So let's not forget that. But still, value in itself inherently means you kind of get more out than you put in. And yeah, maybe financial measures are not the ones that matter. But there is a dynamic there that needs to be explored a lot more. And so 
I, I don't want to knock the industry at all. I think that some some of what happens is, is fascinating. Um, but at the same time, I think we all need to be a little bit more thoughtful in just thinking about our paths and ultimately just remembering that you've got to keep the main thing the main thing, which is what is the problem you're solving? And if you need money to solve that problem, and don't get me wrong, like I think if we had extra capital with what we do at Move Me Back, the speed at which we would move, the level of sophistication that we would operate at would be far mm-hmm. different. But at the same time, there have been you know, a lot of benefits of not doing that because it's allowed us to tune in very specifically to just solving and focus on solving a fundamental problem, which I, I think we've cracked. Now we need to mm. think about how we scale. Fabulous. So you touched briefly on Agony App and the success of that. The Continent Group, whether it's, I guess, Continent Group does, I guess, a lot of the bigger work around the consulting, whether it's with organizations, big organizations or government policies, etc. on the mm. continent. But you guys are also doing a lot of work around investing into the opportunities given COVID and all of the world living through this pandemic. What problems are you guys uh, are now hoping to tackle and, and solve? 2020 has been very humbling. And I think it's it's important for us all to just take a few moments to to remember, despite how quickly things move in the media, for many, this has been a terrible year in terms of the amount of loss that we've all experienced and yeah. the amount of, of trauma that I think mm. the world has gone through. And, it, it, and we're yeah. not through it, and we mustn't forget that. And if this moment doesn't channel us and doesn't bring us to a place where we really you know, take a look at what's important, then mm. you know, I fear nothing else will. Uh, and so going to your question, what the world needs, I think the fundamental recognition or realization that we, we need to come to is that we live in a world that in one sense is very connected, but it's very distant from each other. So mm. let's take the UK, the, the UK has suffered a lot through COVID, but mm. that, you know, that suffering in a way is when you look at it from an economic point of view, it's we're talking about drops in our economic growth, right? And, you know, maybe going back, I mean, there's been a lot of talk of, hey, look, we, we've kind of reversed all the growth achievements we've found in 18 years, but we're still at 2000 levels, which is you know, 2002 levels, which is not terrible, right? But it's going to mm. be, let's not underestimate it. But then you look at the continent and you're like, well, the margin is far smaller you know, and there are people who are going to starve. There are people who are going to go hungry. There are people who, mm. for whom actually, what is it? Gambia had like two ventilators, not to say that mm. the ventilator was to be or an end or at one point we thought it was, but the reality is there are a few things that are, are, are very important. Um, so firstly, healthcare, uh, mm. and I'm really glad to see that we're seeing investors, we're seeing entrepreneurs, we're seeing governments really think about healthcare, you know, mm. the, the era of healthcare tourism is over and as Africans Mm. we need to build our capability and our capacity at home and it's Mm. long overdue and we need to do that and we need to do that today but you know it all comes down to jobs and stable jobs and that's why Mm. the continent's goal is all-encompassing people ultimately need stable jobs you know Mm. they need to have the buffer they need to put food on the table and beyond that to build a life for themselves and then go on to actually create value economically within an mm. ecosystem. And I'm not an economist by trade, but I think there are very few economists who would disagree with me that fundamentally most problems that we need to solve are around creating jobs and creating ethical jobs um, mm. and creating stable jobs. And what, what I mean by stable jobs is 
as a profession, you know what you do today is what you do tomorrow. Not one day you wake up and you're doing one thing to get money, then mm-hmm. the next day you're doing the other thing to get money. For us, that's the focus. And specifically on the constant, the constant is our group. Uh, you know, it was very important for us to actually own that brand as the constant. Mm-hmm constant.com it's not something we talk about publicly massively but at the time there is a time and a place for that and it came from a a lot of the time whenever we were doing things i I remember when i worked at mckinsey i worked with a a gentleman called achaleke who's very prominent in the africa space Mm -hmm. and I went to see him in Nigeria and this was before I'd considered working in Africa. And after our meeting, he said, mm. so when are you coming back to the continent? And that's when the phrase first like struck me. It's mm. like, oh, the continent, that's that's Africa. As Africans, we wanted to Africa to own that that name and that title. And we wanted the continent also to, rec- to be associated with the ambition that we need to build the next generation. And so that 500 million jobs goal over the next 15 years is a real one. It's not just a tagline. It's like, mm. we don't exactly know where it's all going to come from, but we have to do it. Because if you look at the number of people entering the job market every year mm. in Africa over the next 15 years, I think it's going to be somewhere in the region of 450 million people, right? So if you create five and there aren't jobs for them, it's not that, hey, look, they enter in the job market and there are job vacancies. Mm. There are not jobs for our use. And this is the biggest opportunity for the continent, but also the biggest ticking time bomb. And we mm. need to solve this, not even just from an economic growth point of view, but just an economic survival perspective. We need mm. to create jobs and we need to create jobs at mass. And we need to do 500 million over the next 15 years. And we're committed to it. And we hope other people will join us in making it 1 billion. Um, but the reality is, if we're going to do that, we need to think as one continent. We need to mm. all be aligned in having a business plan for the continent. We are different countries. We do different things. But this is why the Africa Free Trade Continental Agreement is so important. We need to have a unified angle to doing this. And from our point of view, from a policy shaping point of view, um, we've been driving something called the Continent 500 Goals, which it takes it's an extension of the SDGs to some degree, the, the UN Sustainability Development Goals. But to say Africa needs a business plan and here mm. are the 12 areas, it, it may be 11, maybe 10, there's a mm. ratification process that's going on now that everyone needs to focus on because these are the things that are going to make us win. These are the things that are going to make us create the jobs that Africa needs and to mm. give the next generation some hope of some level of prosperity and pride and integration into the international community in a way that is more equitable in a way that matters in a way that's not hey africa the forgotten continent and that's important and we've got to do that today amazing so where do people find you find move me back um websites social media handles callmechalet.com <laughs> yeah so i mean you can you can go to my undersubscribed instagram uh instagram channel or something we're still working on it uh but Undersus- yeah you don't even post <laughs> do i don't post yeah <laughs> you have to yeah. post for people to want to yeah, like you know. engage <laughs> uh but on your undersubscribed subscribed instagram call me Chale. Yeah, the luxury of my life is that I have a very unique surname. Um, fortunately mm. or unfortunately, it depends. You know, if you're doing good things or bad things, uh, there are not many sequelors in the world. So if you mm. Google Charles Sequelor, S-E-K-W-A-L-O-R, you will find me quite easily. LinkedIn is always a good channel. I'm not so not so good on the social, but see Sequelor on Twitter, Instagram, call me Chale. Yeah, and, and I'm pretty easy to find. Just be persistent because you don't read emails. <laughs> 
I don't read emails. Thank you. Thank you, you for telling read, the world. You don't read emails. <laughs> I don't read emails. I there you go. I'm sorry. I actually don't read you emails. You don't read yeah. emails. Thank, thanks um, for that. But, <laughs> but if, just in case you've sent him an email somewhere, anyone listening, that's why he hasn't responded. I guess if if you're not on the uh, recruitment drives in different parts of the world or on an airplane, which you know with COVID you have been grounded somewhat people can google you and, fi- and find you thank you so much for a great episode i thoroughly enjoyed everything that we talked about and uh hopefully it'll be great to have you on again actually i think there's still so much we haven't covered yeah absolutely um Zese, thank you so much for having me thank you for the opportunity i think it's um you know the opportunity to just uh, dig into things a little bit differently from a different angle um is always welcome and, and it's yeah, really enjoyed being a part of this, and, and hopefully, I'll get to interview you at some point. You know, hey. maybe I'll, I'll start by working on the social media post first, right? Let's take you know small, small steps first, and then you know when I get my act together, maybe maybe we'll have a podcast, and, and we'll oh see. But yeah, that would be fun. There we go. Every everyone everyone is waiting for that. Goodness me! Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Third Culture Africans, the Lifestyle Podcast. We would love to hear from you. So please find us on Facebook or Instagram at Third Culture Africans and leave us a comment. A review goes a long way in getting our show noticed. So please leave us one if you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time.